friends, you can earn CEUs for listening to this podcast. It's such an easy way to learn on the go. Check out speechtherapypd.com slash SUP and enter my promo code SUP to get $10 off a year's subscription. With weekly podcasts, you'd never have to worry about getting enough hours again. Can we say ACE Award? Like, for sure. (laughs) Plus, you can join me for the live CEUs and ask me and my guests questions directly. We broadcast the CEU every Monday evening, and I love engaging with my CEU participants. The Speech Uncensored podcast is your one-stop shop for all things medical speech and language pathology related. This week, we're diving into the topic of travel therapy, and I have the pleasure of hosting Julia Kuhn. She's lived and worked all across the United States and is currently living her best life in the Aloha State. And I'm not jealous, not at all. Totally not jealous about that fact. Uh, Anyway, as you'll hear in our conversation, I actually came across Julia's Facebook group years ago when I was interested in travel therapy and found a wonderful and supportive place that was chock full of helpful advice and information. So join me as I quiz Julia on all things travel therapy related, and she demonstrates that she is more than up to the task. This is like her jam, y'all. Like, she is here for this. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and now let's get to it. All right. Hi, Julia. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm so delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, I've actually been low-key stalking you for like a really long time, like well before I did this podcast, like back before I even moved to Kansas City. I was living in Virginia and I was thinking like, I think I might like to be a travel SLP. And so like I was out there looking like who's doing this thing. And I joined a Facebook group. It was your Facebook group. And I learned so much about it. And you have such a positive presence and you're so supportive and uplifting and guiding people that I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I had no idea you were stalking me. (laughs) It's good to have you. I mean, only in a very positive way. (laughs) (laughs) The best kind. (laughs) That's right. So yay, now we get to like meet online via podcast life. That's the best. I love the internet. I love social media because I I actually get to kind of meet so many people, even though we're not meeting in real life. It's kind of like real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, all right. Well, shall we go ahead and dive in and go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about you? A- absolutely. Well, I'm my name is Julia Kuhn. I'm a speech language pathologist. I've been one since 2010. And I mostly work in adult neurogenic rehab. I started out in the SNFs. I've done mostly acute care now in patient rehab. And about a year and a half after I started working, I started becoming a travel SLP, which means that I work short-term assignments, mostly 13 weeks, and they could be anywhere in the U.S. So that's how I got started in travel. I've been East Coast, West Coast, Texas, and now I'm in Hawaii. So that's awesome. Get to live that life. And in doing all that, I, the more I traveled, the more I realized other people didn't know how to travel or we were looking for a community of other travelers. So I created resources like the Facebook group you mentioned, my Instagram, my blog, where I teach other people how to do this professionally for work and also connect them with other people who are doing the same for their own lifestyle and inspiration. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. I'm glad to be here. That's- 
Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Um, I have like a million questions. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll get right in. So, um, yeah, let's dive in. Okay, so um, who can be a travel SLP? What's an ideal candidate or what's a just a good enough candidate? I don't know if I should say that. Like, <laughs> well, one of, I would say kind of the maybe good or bad things about travel is kind of technically anybody can. Uh, right now, there's not an industry standard that says like you can travel or you can't travel. So technically like a CF could travel or, or anybody could travel. Um, I, I think we maybe should have actually like a little kind of regulation to it because being a traveler is actually tough. It means you're going to a location somewhere in the U.S. that's so desperate for staffing that they're paying a lot of extra money to bring somebody in to work this short-term contract. And usually what that means is that the job might be harder, like the caseload might be harder. It might be um, a location with maybe poor management. Um, sometimes it's just a perfect job that just really needs somebody for whatever reason, maybe extra staff for the winter time or a maternity leave. But because of all those factors where like you're moving, you're going into a new place, it's like all unknown. I would say the ideal candidate is somebody who has strong clinical skills in the area they're working in. You don't have to be this like expert clinician. I surely wasn't like I was a novice clinician when I started, but you have to be confident in your basic clinical skills in that area, be able to work independently and just be flexible and have a good attitude. I think attitudes, everything you're going to go into a place that isn't like the last place you work. They might do things differently. You don't want to go in there and start conflict. You want to get the job done and be a positive influence. So being able to work with new people, new systems, new patients. Um, so having an open mind and being flexible, I think, are some important parts of traveling. Yeah, th I think those are all things that kind of I would have thought of beforehand. And also things that I'm like, yeah, I like new experiences. I'm a people person. But then lately with a lot of changes in my work life, um, building a new hospital addition, bringing on lots more staff, moving like where we're serving patients from one place to another and then back again during construction. I realized I really don't like that. And I am not flexible. And it's very, very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm totally like rethinking everything about my life. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I just like the idea of travel. <laughs> maybe I wouldn't be the right candidate at it. I don't know. I mean, some people just might be great just taking a vacation for a couple of weeks to a new place. You know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot different when you think of travel. You know, it's a lot different to work in Hawaii or vacation in Hawaii. You know, it's there's there's big changes, big cultural shocks. Uh, I learned I learned early a lot of just important life lessons. Like I went from Boston, Massachusetts to Dallas, Texas, um, with you know the first three months that I started traveling, and learned really quick. Like I couldn't just go up to people in the units and be like, "Hey guys, like do this." Like they would literally just look at me and be like, "No, like you have to say like y'all, and you have to like approach us differently. Like we don't." we don't even communicate the same way that you're used to communicating. So a lot of big like life lessons and culture shocks kind of happened quickly. And I learned a lot about myself and a lot of the U S cultures and subcultures quickly. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, but it's fun. And I like it. 
Yeah, I could see huge changes going from Boston to Texas and then to Hawaii, like massive cultural influences and different styles of doing things and living life and interacting with people. Like, yeah, that goes like above and beyond just having the clinical skills to be successful in various settings, too. Yeah, I mean, the, the clinical skills have to be your foundation because as a traveler, you, ha- you have to realize you're often coming from a different place, a different culture. People might not respect you. They might not value your opinion just based on you not being from that community. So first and foremost, you kind of have to have your clinical skills. And then you have to have the ability to gain trust with people you're just meeting who you might be completely opposite of in a lot of ways. So things to think about. Okay, Julia, so what are the reasons an SLP might consider traveling? What's going to attract them to the field or motivate them to look into it? I think the big motivating factors for a lot of people are just that adventure and wanting something challenging, different, flexibility, um, maybe money, which I'll talk about in a second. But I would say it's the people who just can't really like stay still in one job. That's it's travel's a good thing. For me, initially my big motivators were that I wanted I wanted different clinical experience. I knew starting out as a novice clinician, I was really um skilled to work in sniffs and the sniff I was in was kind of like the same thing day in day out, kind of got the same patients, didn't see a lot of variety. So for me, I knew even if I was switching sniffs every couple months, it was still going to be this great learning experience because I would be working with new colleagues and new patients and in different places. And the more I travel, the more I really just travel for the flexibility and lifestyle of it, which is big for a lot of people. You get to work three months and then potentially take off as long as you want to, as long as you you can afford to. So the lifestyle can be a huge motivating factor for a lot of people. You get to work a couple months, take time off. You get to move around, travel, see the country, see places that people really might only dream of seeing or uh, think they'll only see like in the retirement. You can see them while you're working. So that's really cool. And then depending on where you're living and different geographic factors, you might really be able to make some more money off of travel. I don't want to say that as a broad statement because it's not true for everybody. It definitely depends on how much you're making beforehand and uh, where you're traveling to and what your living expenses are. Mm. Okay. So um, how do you, what do you do for insurance? Because I hear like working three months and being like, well, that sounds great. And then taking off however long you want. But then I'm like, if I'm not working, how am I getting health insurance? Like, well, how does that work? That's a good question, a popular question. There's a couple different ways you can do it. You can absolutely pick up your own private plan. That's actually after years and years and years of not having my own private plan, I finally have my own. And it's kind of like a stress relief. I don't have to worry about it. Just automatically gets deducted every month. I carry my own insurance plan. Um, The agencies you work for will have insurance. And That'll cover you as long as you're working for them. And sometimes it'll extend a little longer pending their own plan. It might extend like an extra month after you finish. Um, But then when your insurance terminates or laps, for whatever reason, you're eligible for COBRA. So as a last resort, you can 
use your agency insurance. And if you take time off, go on Cobra, you can go back to agency. So I did the on and off Cobra game for years, which is a lot of paperwork. And now I'm finally happy. I just have my own plan and it's kind of easy like that. Um, having your own plan, is that cost efficient or do you feel like it is a little bit more expensive to provide your own insurance rather than go through the companies, even though it's like a lot of paperwork or just having a like full-time job in one place? What's your feelings on that? Well, it definitely depends on the insurance that you're getting from your agency, um, my insurance agency, um, the insurance I was getting through my agency was okay. Uh, the insurance I'm, I'm paying for myself now might actually be a little better and it's about the same price. So I think price, pricing wise, I'm doing okay. I don't have the top tier insurance. I have like a, I have like the, if platinum is like top tier insurance, I think I have like gold or silver insurance. Um, and I, for me, it's cost effective. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Very nice. Um, what are the pay variabilities for, um, travel? Cause I think you mentioned something about that briefly. Um, of course we know it depends based on region and cost of living in that region and then your own personal lifestyle and how you, choose to spend money. Yeah. Um, but if you're like, okay, I'm going to get into this, I'm going to go be a traveling SLP and you're working with a recruiter and they give you a number, like what do all those numbers mean? Because it's not a straight forward thing. I know there's like a, an hourly rate and then your take home. And then there's like, what's tax, what's not <laughs> deductible by taxes. And it gets really complicated from there. So please step in and relieve this burden for me, Julia. <laughs> I mean, it, it, does, it does get complicated. There's a huge breakdown of different things that occur. So first of all, it starts with what your agency is getting paid by the facility. So most facilities out there, whether it's a school or a SNP or hospital, they pay, generally speaking, somewhere between maybe 60 and $80 an hour to have us in the facility. Um, which when you think about it really isn't that much when when you're thinking about all the extra money and people and you know like the agency that goes into staffing us there so maybe a, a agency might get paid maybe like 20 or 30 percent more than what we'd be making full-time as employees so then that money the agency keeps a portion of that to do all their work and remember these are brick and mortar agencies they have tons of people working for them. So they're keeping maybe 20, 25, 30% of, of your pay. So then the rest of it gets trickled down to you. And from there, you're seeing a split. So you have your hourly pay rate, and then you have your tax-free stipend. So if you're traveling for work, and you're maintaining what's called a tax home, which is a, a residence where you either make your money or you're living and maintaining rent and you're spending time there. So talking about tax homes is like this whole, it could be like a two hour podcast in itself. But if you're basically maintaining a tax home, it means you're qualifying for tax-free money while you're traveling. So then you're going to get uh, the tax-free money, a stipend for your housing, your meals, your living and incidentals. 
So that's going to come separate of your hourly rate. So if you're starting at the top with that, like maybe say like $65 an hour is like the amount of money that your agency is getting paid, and then they're taking a portion of it and trickling it down to you. So your hourly rate may only be like $20 an hour, but it's because that like say $45 an hour that your agency has to give you after they take their cut, it's being split between tax-free money for a stipend and your hourly rate. So across the US, a lot of like the net take-homes, so I'm talking about the tax-free money plus the tax rate might come to like, say per week net take home $1,500 a week, maybe to like $1,700 a week. And then in your crisis areas like California, it can be like $1,700 a week plus, you know, over $2,000 a week net take home. So it can definitely sound like a lot of money, especially if you're a new grad or you're in an area where SLPs don't get paid well. However, you kind of have to think that that money is what covers you all year long, whether you're working or not. It definitely comes at a risk, like a contract can get canceled at any moment. And if you're getting that tax-free money, you're also maintaining your tax home. So you have living expenses at home, plus you have living expenses on the road and short-term temporary housing is very hard to find cheap. So if you're getting the tax-free money, it means it's not like your agency's providing housing for you. You're finding it yourself. It can be expensive. And then you're maintaining uh, your, your house at home. You definitely don't have to maintain a tax home. That just means that all of your money is going to be taxed. And I've, I've taken quite a few fully taxed jobs because I'll also work locally. I'll work at home. I always have. I'll take probably an assignment a year at home. So if I'm looking at taking a fully taxed job, it might be like $40 an hour, which if you're already making that in the SNFs uh, at another location, uh, you know, then you think like with the your SNF job or your other job, you might already have like PTO and other benefits. So, um, you know, you might actually be like losing money if you're taking a fully taxed job. So it's different, different things to consider. Yeah, you just like busted my bubble hardcore there, Julia. I was like living that like big money life. And then you're like, uh-uh, honey, no. <laughs> There, there's big, there's big money out there. You can chase, you can chase big money. There's um, good, good money in California, but it all depends on where you're starting, what your rate is at home, what you're paying at home to maintain your house, what the cost of living is on the road. So there's some people who travel purely for the money and they maintain pretty affordable tax homes and they get big tax-free stipends, and they can really live um, frugally on assignments, and they just bank money. And others are like, I'm just going to live the travel diva life and <laughs> like take the great apartments, and I don't care what I bank. So it's, it's totally kind of what you want to do and what you make of it. Okay. All right. So where can you work as a travel therapist? You can... You can work anywhere there's a need. So schools, outpatient clinics, SNFs, hospitals, inpatient rehabs. 
I would say any setting definitely has a need for travel therapist. Um, I would say the the kind of myth is like you could work anywhere in the U.S. The reality is travel therapists are really only needed in areas that have trouble staffing for one reason or another. So you can't just say like, I want to go to Austin, Texas, and there's going to be a job there. You have to go where the jobs are. And those tend to be in places that aren't already saturated by SLPs. Because why would you need to travel in a place that already has a lot of SLPs? So I find there's tons of jobs in California. Uh, Massachusetts is actually a pretty good state. And actually for schools, you can kind of take that on the road anywhere. There's a ton of school jobs across the country. It's more the medical jobs like the SNFs that are a little more limited. But schools definitely have more opportunities. So I would say most, if you're thinking about travel, think about working in the schools or if you're medical side, think about working in the SNFs because like 90% of the medical jobs are in the SNFs. Mm, okay. Um, Julia, where's the most unusual place you've taken an assignment? And you can define unusual however you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I haven't been in too many crazy places. Um, Western Mass for me, like uh, I lived in Agawam and I was working in Hamden, Mass was a little rural, but um, great assignment, actually really good. Fresno, California was an interesting one for me. I worked in the level one trauma center where I found out um, there's quite a bit of like gang violence there. We saw a lot of gunshot wounds, um, learned there were gangs on the street I was living on, which was a bit interesting, but um, there have been some unusual places for different reasons. I haven't worked anywhere too crazy. Okay, cool. So there's a good mix of assignments in rural and urban areas, and it's just really all over. You just kind of have to dive in to kind of find out where the jobs pop up. Yeah. Does that sound about totally. right? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's where where is an SLP needed for a short amount of time? Um, how can you find a job? Can you just like go through the hospital? Do you have to go through a recruiter? At this point, you really have to go through a recruiting agency. The staffing industry is wild. Like in and believe me, like I'm trying to independent contract myself and it's almost impossible. Like um, hospitals don't want to work directly with an individual. They want to work with an agency who has proven themselves to deliver good candidates. So, yeah, you absolutely want to go through a staffing agency and there's uh, a million of them. I, I mean, at least 100 that staff strongly in the therapy world. Um, is there a place where um, someone could go where travelers have rated the company so they could kind of decide who they want to try out if this is new for them before like maybe picking one that may not have a very good working reputation? Or would you say it just depends on the particular recruiter that you work with? Like, is it just like more of like a personal kind of one-on-one -on -one with a recruiter or do companies have reputations? I would, I would say for the most part, it's a personal one-on-one -on -one with the recruiter. I've 
I've delved pretty deep in the agency side of things recently. And I, I absolutely would say that there are companies that just have cultures that are, some are positive and some are negative. So there is that like top down approach where you have companies that are really just sales driven and their leadership is telling their recruiters like, you know, like lie to the therapist, bait and switch the therapist, do this, do anything you can to make a sale. There are those companies and within them, there's probably some good recruiters. And then there's some more probably, I would say, well-run companies that have good and bad recruiters. So my recommendation right now is to get a recommendation for a recruiter itself at an agency that you like. A service I particularly like is called Nomadicare. And that's a company started by a former traveler that matches you with recruiters based on your wants and needs. So things like, are you where are you looking for jobs? Do you want insurance? Is that important to you? And they'll match you with two, th- two recruiters who you can communicate kind of based on your small, small profile. So that's, and that's actually where I just went recently to find a new recruiter based on something I was looking for. So I would highly recommend them. And then as far as just getting reviews in general, your typical places to look are like Glassdoor and Indeed and Facebook reviews. And you can gather a lot off of them, but it's so hard to because so many people just write reviews when they're mad or negative at a company or some of the positive reviews might be ones that people were asked to write. So it is hard to get like true kind of genuine information off of reviews. Yeah, I can see that. Really good points, Julia. Like I can really tell that like this is your life. Like you really like teach others about the travel industry. And so thank you. You're <laughs> you have a very organized approach to this. I feel very scattered today. So thank you for bringing Zen into our conversation. I, I did just create a six and a half hour course about how to be a travel therapist, which I realize is like ridiculously long, but I could talk about this for hours. It is my passion for sure. Well, that is awesome. And you know, like I really looked into traveling for like a long time. Like I read a lot of posts and sometimes the more I would read that, you know, people would talk about like on the the Facebook group or whatever would just lead to more questions in my brain. So I can totally believe six hours would just give you a thorough introduction, but like, there's probably still more. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of information. And Sometimes I do feel like getting on Facebook groups is like just digging into a rabbit hole because you're always hearing about people's like worst experience or like everything that can go wrong. And I think a big part of travel is just doing it and being okay with the mistakes, like learning from your mistakes. Obviously, like I hate to see people really get taken advantage of. Like I I meet people all the time who end up losing like thousands of dollars just by not, you know, not knowing their going rates or being taken advantage of. So obviously I don't want people to be taken advantage of, but some of the smaller things, it's like, it's, it's good. I I guess you'd say character building to learn like some things along the way too makes you stronger. Yeah. So what would be, um, I don't want to say like a common mistake, but what might be kind of a frequent pitfall that people might 
accidentally fall into just because they haven't come in contact with that type of information? Like how might somebody lose thousands of dollars or be taken advantage of in this situation? I would say the biggest mistakes I see are the new the new travelers who get targeted by um, like agencies. So there's some very large agencies out there who have like great marketing departments and they reach out to SLPs, say for instance, in the schools, and they might do like a lunch and learn, or they might come to ASHA and spend like, a, you know, so much money to get like a premier booth at the exhibit hall. So they might be that first point of contact for the travel world. And they, um, you know, they might feed SLPs information about what to expect and how it is. And I would say the mistake that SLPs might make is that they only connect with one agency and only hear one side of the story. And that's kind of how people end up losing the thousands of dollars is that the agency, and, and this happened to me in the beginning, they'll, they'll hype up a pay package. They'll say, I got the best pay package for you. You're not going to believe it. How much are you making as a, you know, as a CF? And I'm like, you know, nothing. And they're like, oh my God, you're not going to believe this pay package. They hype it up. And then they say it's um, $1,400 net a week after taxes. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's so much. And then you come to find out that um, any, any other agency that was willing to really negotiate with you would have given you like $1,600 a week after taxes. So there's this like $200 margin I see all the time, which is kind of the difference between people who talk to one agency and it might be an agent, like people who kind of talk to their like first agency and others who really shop around. So that's my biggest piece of advice to people is talk to multiple agencies. Even if you become really loyal to one agency, always compare prices. You're probably not going to buy a car just by going to one place or looking at one place. You're going to compare rates. So make sure you're comparing rates from, from different agencies and talking to different recruiters and just finding out other resources of your own. One of my big goals this year is really to be one of those first points of contact for SLPs. Like I would love speech language pathologists to hear about travel, like from me before they hear about it from an agency. So I want to get that traveler opinion out there and be a little more unbiased in the information that's presented. Yeah, I'm down with that. That's a great idea, Julia. Let's do that. Let's make that happen. <laughs> You're already helping me on this podcast, so thank you. Sometimes I forget that, like, yeah, people listen to this. <laughs> like, I'm still amazed. I think it's wonderful. Absolutely. I listen to it. Oh, yay. I'm so glad. Now you get to listen to yourself on it. <laughs> I won't. I'm just telling you, I won't listen to this episode because it freaks me out to hear my own voice, but I trust it's good. <laughs> That is too funny. You are not the first, and I'm sure you will not be the last guest who will tell me that. Like that always cracks me up because I listen to them. I'm like judging myself. I'm like, mm-hmm, Leanne, you ain't got no sense, do you, girl? It's all right. I'm there for you. <laughs> all right. Well, my next question is about licenses. Um, how many licensees? I don't know how to say that world that word plural. I am a hot mess today. Um, how many do you keep at once? Do you let some go? How hard is it to get them back? What's been your experience with that? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. It's a good question. 
I have three active right now. At the most, I've had six active, and it's tough, mostly because they're they're expensive, and you and some of them are like two hundred and fifty dollars a renewal period. So it's hard to decide which ones to keep active or not. I've let the ones go that I don't that really. I've let my licenses lapse where the job markets have kind of lapsed there. So I let Texas go because I went down to Texas almost 10 years ago now when the job market there was great. There were so many jobs. Jobs are paying well. Now it's not so great. So I'm not really hanging on to it. I let Massachusetts go. I was living there a long time, but then the job market really turned, um, kind of turned down. And once I left the East Coast, I kind of didn't want to go back anyway. So I let that go in Connecticut. So it's hard. It's hard to decide which ones to get and which ones to let go. I would say if you have California, you're probably going to be, um, you're going to be in a good job market always. There's pretty much always jobs there. And otherwise, before you get a license, I'd really look into the stats, like review your agency's websites where it says, this is where the jobs are and really look and see if there's actually jobs in the state or not. Because it's not worth it holding on to like Florida, for instance, if there's only like a job that comes up there a year or Florida is probably not a good example, but maybe like, I don't know, Tennessee, like it, you know, you kind of, you think, oh, I want to work in Nashville, but in reality, like a handful of Nashville or Tennessee jobs come up a year. So really look at the stats before you start applying. Okay. Um, in your own personal traveling career, how many times or maybe percentage wise, do you work in hospital versus skilled nursing? Right now, the past three years, I've done a hundred percent hospitals. The year before that, I was doing all inpatient rehab. And prior to that, I did all sniffs. So I would say in the travel world that you kind of land where your experience is. And I started out, my CF was in a sniff. I only had sniff experience. So I did sniff jobs year after year after year after year. And believe me, like I wanted to expand my skills. I was dying to get like an inpatient rehab job. And I really just couldn't get hired anywhere because you have to be confident in your area going in. So what happened that I ended up making a change was actually the travel market got kind of bad a couple of years ago when the Medicare changes, Medicare rules changed in the sniffs and like group therapy was no longer really allowed. Uh, dovetailing therapy wasn't allowed. So in that time when the travel market kind of died out, I actually went back to Boston where I was living and I worked full-time PRN in a, I did like inpatient rehab. I did an acute unit. I did LTAC unit. So these were places that were willing to train me and, um, invest in me because I was local to Boston, but I was also able to basically kind of do temp work and do PRN. So once I got that experience, that actually opened up a ton of doors for medical positions. And since then, I've been working mostly like neural, like inpatient rehab acute. So that's where I am now. Of course, it's harder to get jobs outside of the SNFs because there's fewer of them. So um, yeah, that's, that's me. And how many contracts do you take a year? 
And can you tell me, are they always 13 weeks? Are they longer? Are they shorter? Is it, what's, what's been your experience in that area? It varies so much. You can, you can work your 13 weeks and they generally do start you out at 13 weeks. And then at that point, if you want to stay, you definitely have some flexibility. Like you might be able to extend for a couple of weeks, extend for a month, extend for another 13 weeks, extend for six months. So there's a ton of flexibility for extending contracts. I would say they generally do start at 13 weeks. It's hard to get one shorter just because the, they generally want you to commit to a longer period of time if you are going to stay there and be trained. Um, lately, I've been working since I started the business where I'm doing resources for traveling. I've been working probably somewhere between six to nine months out of the year uh, clinically. And then before that, I was working probably 10 or 11 months out of the year. And, and way back when I was really super, super broke and paying off a lot of loans, I, was, I wasn't taking any time off. I was working job after job after job, not taking any time off and kind of burning out a little bit. So I definitely do recommend taking some time off. When you have a contract um, and there, it's around, I'll say Christmas time, do you get that off are you paid? Like there's no PTO. So if you are, if you don't go to work, you don't get paid. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So if you want vacation time, it is all unpaid. And do you have to get that all off? Like in the contract period, like before you sign that contract to say like, you know, on this date, it's a Friday during the week of whatever month, like I will be off that day. Like, do you have to arrange that then? Or do you do that once you're in the setting? I would do it both. So I would absolutely get it written in the contract. And then once it's agreed upon in the contract, I would bring it up to your direct manager because often the managers don't even know what's in your contract. So I would do, I would absolutely do both. You can always show up to a contract and ask for the time off, but then you're risking your manager saying no. So I would do both and mostly recommend that you're, you take your time off in between contracts. So you, you kind of plan your trips, your life around like when you're working, when you're not. Okay. Um, let's, I'm just going to give you a really random example. Um, let's say you wrote into your contract that you're going to be off like two specific days during that contract. It's in the contract. You get to your location, you're talking with your manager, you know, you just got there and you're like, Oh, Hey, this is in my contract. Like you even have the printout, you show it to them. You know, I'm going to be off these two days. And they tell you, no, you have to work those two days. Like, can something like that happen? I'm sure, I'm sure it probably has happened. Um, I would, depending on how serious I was about it, I'd probably fight it, like get, get my agency to call their agency, um, stand my ground. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's happened. I've never been in the position where I've asked for something and not been able to take it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you're super serious about it, then you would consider breaking the contract. So all the contracts have ways to get out of them, usually like a two-week notice or a four-week notice. But in that case, who knows, like that's a breach of contract. So you might just kind of be able to end and, um, you know, start someplace else. And I'd, I'd be super surprised if a place would 
lose, uh, you know, a 13 week staff member over like one day or two days. But if you have to take it to that point, I guess, you know, you never know. Okay. You mentioned earlier that um, the company could cut you like, like kind of fire you, like let you go from the contract at any point. Is there anything that you can put into your contract that says they have to give you a notice or like, what's the standard there? Yeah, it's usually, so if it's a typical contract termination, they do have to give you notice and it's in the contract. So it's either a two week notice or a four week notice. Um, the facilities might skirt around that by saying like you breach the contract. So they may say like, this person isn't capable or competent to be to perform the job or something like that. Like I've seen some some kind of nasty things happen to people, which unfortunately stinks. Um, or a lot of like places might just say we're we're ending it, like um, you know, fight with us in court, and they kind of know that it's costing a lot more money to retain a lawyer, um, to go to court, to fight over like $3,000 than just not. So it's, it can, it can kind of be a nasty world out there. And that's another thing you have to be prepared for as a traveler is just dealing with contracts and people breaching them or not doing what they say they would and how you handle that. Okay. All right. Well, now I'm in a total bummer mood now. So. <laughs> Julia, please. I know. Tell me some good stories. Like, tell me what's awesome about it. Tell me what you enjoy. Why you keep doing it after all these years? What keeps you in this lifestyle? I love the opportunities. I love the flexibility. I'm going to Jordan in two weeks to like scuba dive and see Petra. I would never be able to do. I would never be able to do that in. Oh, actually, by the time this came out, I will have been there. So, um, but I, I mean, I've, I remember I, I was, when I was working in Fresno, um, I was going to Yosemite to hike almost like every weekend, which is just like my Disneyland. Like I love hiking and Yosemite's beautiful. And I, I was on the trail there and I was talking to somebody from like Michigan who is, who is saying like, oh, you're so lucky. Like you get to come here every weekend. Like this is a trip I've been dreaming about for years and I only get to spend five days here. So that's something that's always stuck with me because I thought like I, I get to see all these places and do all these things that people dream about for years. And then, then when it finally happens, they might only have like a couple days to spend somewhere. So travel's great in that way. It's taken me to all over California, Hawaii, Texas, East Coast. And then clinically, it's just, it's really advanced my careers in ways I know just weren't possible working a full-time job. And the experiences that I've seen, like every place is just so different that I value that a lot. I feel like I've grown so much clinically and, um, and have been able to really expand my skill set there. So that's another great value. I don't want to leave you on a negative note. <laughs> Travel is doing that. Yeah, like I'm a total roller coaster. So like... <laughs> Within this episode, I've been like, team travel. And then I've been like, ooh, I don't need that stress in my life. And I'm like, oh, the flexibility of travel is so amazing. So, 
I'm just, I'm just all over the place. That's just me today. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do. I have a positive impression of it. I think I'm just as a individual, like super conscious of like worst possible outcomes and trying to avoid them and like preparing myself for them. So like somehow knowing them and having that information like would help me avoid that. So you know, in the in the group, I've seen in the Facebook group, I've seen some people who I thought they will never travel. Like they'll post a lot of questions. And I thought this person is never going to travel. They're going to hate it. And like, lo and behold, they've ended up traveling and maybe for a minute have hated it, but it's like kind of changed them too. Like I've seen, I've seen, I'm sure I've evolved and changed a lot over the years, but I've also witnessed that happen to other people where they came in like really kind of timid and afraid and I don't know what to do, but then you see them like grow and evolve and take things on and do things that they never thought they could do. So that's a, a benefit of travel. And it's definitely like can can make you interpersonally and professionally and everything like a stronger person, which is cool. That is so awesome. Like, yeah, team travel. <laughs> I love it. I am, I'm like, and I'm here for like personal development and like growing and being like a better person and a stronger clinician and I just think that's really cool that you get to witness that as well and like see that happen for people. Like that's really cool. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, you can totally, totally just see people. I I love social media. So I love following people and watching them. And that's a cool thing. I guess I'm a stalker too. Yeah. We should get together and like lurk together because I'm a great lurker. Like I'm just a pro. I'm so skilled at that. It's embarrassing. So we should totally get together and lurk on all these people and be like, we're cheering for you, but from the shadows. (laughs) Cause that's not creepy at all. All right, Julia, I want you to tell our listeners um, about the amazing resources that we have in the show notes on speechuncensored.com. Yeah, so we have all these great resources. Like first and foremost, we have the Travel Therapy Therapist Group, which you and I were just talking about. And if you want to get started in travel and don't know where, just join the group and I guess lurk on it, but don't I recommend it. <laughs> don't be too don't be too afraid of anything people post. I Actually, I meet all, I meet people all the time who have said like I joined that group because I thought I was interested in travel, but have remained in, in it because people's stories are so interesting. So apparently, there there are a lot of people who just come for the the stories and lurking. But then my blog is the thetravelingtraveler.com, and I have a lot of free resources on that. You can follow me on Instagram and it seems like there's a shift from like people reading, say like blog posts to people reading like Instagram posts. So my Instagram captions have turned into mini blog posts. So you can follow those. And then I have that huge course I was talking about the guide to travel therapy, which is unteachable. The link is there. And if that is like too much for you, kind of keep your eyes out because I'm probably going to break it into some smaller sections too because I've been getting some feedback that like, hey, like I don't need all this stuff, but I would like um, like some smaller portions of it. So keep your eyes open for that. Okay, cool. Excellent. 
Well, that's awesome. Julia, it has been so much fun to sit down and learn about traveling from the source and not by lurking on your Facebook group anymore. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining me and sharing all this information. Like, gosh, now I'm conflicted. I just want to like toss it all in traveling. Like, I don't know. Gosh. You can always try it. You can always try. And if it doesn't work, um, you know, go back. There's no shame in that. Oh, that's true. Sometimes I think that way. Like once I'm like a train on tracks, like once I start a direction, like that's it. That's the only thing I can do. I can't like switch courses. So thank you for saying that. Like, yes, you can, you can try it. And if it's not for you, you've learned something. Yeah. <laughs> you can go back to permanent, you know, one location kind of a gig. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, all right. I guess we should say thanks and bye. All right. <laughs> thanks, Leanne. <laughs> no, thank you, Julia. Do you know what you're doing next summer? I do. I'm presenting awesome medical-focused SLP CEUs on an Alaskan cruise with SpeechTherapyPD.com. From July 10th to the 17th of 2020, we're offering 12 hours of CEUs during a seven-day cruise through the Alaskan and Canadian coast. Check out SpeechTherapyPD.com slash cruise to learn more and sign up. I hope to see you there. I hope you found Julia's discussion as enlightening and helpful as I did, and maybe even inspired a few of you to take the leap and try it out. I'm all about encouraging people to try new things and have new experiences. Be sure to check out the show notes at speechuncensored.com for Julia's helpful links to learn more. For next week's episode, I am pleased to welcome Michelle Wheeler back to the podcast to discuss voice banking. She mentioned it briefly in her first appearance on the podcast in episode two of season two on her introductory talk on adult-focused AAC. And I really wanted her to come back on the podcast and unravel this mystery for me because in our discussion, I realized I really didn't understand what voice banking was like at all. So she came back on and she demystified it and clarified everything for me. So tune in next week to learn the difference between voice banking and message banking. Also something I didn't know about. (laughs) All right. So I am so grateful you have tuned in and choose to spend your time listening to the podcast. It is a labor of love that I am so fortunate to be involved in, and it wouldn't be possible without your support. So thank you so much for subscribing, for leaving reviews following me on Instagram and Facebook, and joining this growing movement of SLPs who strive to provide the highest quality of services in challenging circumstances. I am grateful for each and every one of you listening. Continue to nourish your brain with SLP goodness and see how your practice flourishes. I'll see you next week.